Good morning. Have a seat. My name is Janice Wood. I am one of the staff pastors here at the Vineyard, and uh, it's good to see all of you today. Um, I don't know about you, but folks, it's been a, a, a rough a rough week, Madison County, am I right? Between the snow and uh, the, the various viruses that are running rampant, including my house right now, um, and the kids out of school. If there's one time you don't want the kids out of school is when you don't feel good, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's been a rough week, and, and can I just offer my condolences very quickly to those, we, somebody mentioned earlier that we have a lot of Packers fans in our congregation, and Folks, uh, last night was a travesty. I'm sorry if I spoiled it for somebody, but, but I'm just saying, you know, I don't know what you're recovering from in here today, but we're going to take it to Jesus, and it's going to be good, and it's going to be all right. Are you ready? Let's, uh, let's start in the book of Galatians. All right, I'm going to work out of the, the book of Galatians. It's a letter that Paul wrote. If you have Bibles, you can turn to chapter 1. We're going to take a, a passage there, and then I'm going to bounce to chapter 4, uh, or pull up your devices, whatever it is that you have. But, uh, but yeah, folks, it has been, it's been a, a rough week for us, too, because in our household, when, when the sheriff is down, the, the, the dogs run amok. You know what I'm saying? And they have been absolute hooligans ever since he's been, he's been down. He's going to be fine. He's just finishing his time. You know what I'm saying? But, but it's, been, it's been rough. And he's had to come out and kind of lay the law down a little bit because clearly I am a deputy that carries no weight at all when he's in the house, and, uh, and then they all settle down. I was telling my friend about this on the phone last night, and she said, you know, that's just how Jesus does me. He's got to come out and tell me who's boss, and, and then I, I settle down. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep on with my badness. And so I don't know what kind of badness you're dealing with, but um, let's hope that next week is, is a better week, and we're all getting better. All right, Galatians. <clears throat> now, to set this up, Galatians is a sweet little letter that the Apostle Paul writes to people in Galatia. Now, the Apostle Paul has done some missionary journeys, meaning that he has traveled to various areas along the Mediterranean Sea, as you would know today. And, uh, and in those places, he's planted churches and things are established. He's put leaders in place. And because he cares about the people that he established churches with, he keeps in touch with them. Now, they don't have email and he doesn't have texting, so he's got to rely on people to, to let him know how things are going. And, uh, and as he learns how things are going, then he responds to to them by letter. And this is just one of his, his sweet little accounts that he's sending to the people that he loves so much. Are you with me? Verse 6, chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning to another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, there are people throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, and I say now again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or God? Where am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. He's saying, listen, folks, I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't make this up. It's not for my benefit. I got this straight from Jesus, straight from where it came from, where it originated, and you guys are deviating from it. Chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. 
But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. That's how Paul writes sweet little messages to the people that he loves, that he planted. His church people, if you will. His parishioners, if you will. Now, just a few things I noticed before we, before we really dig in. Number one, the Apostle Paul is sassy. And I love me some sassy apostles, right? I like the sassy prophets. One of my favorites is Elisha because he just can't tolerate it. You know what I mean? He just grumps around about everything. Anybody in Scripture who, whose personality kind of jumps off the page, I kind of love that. And Paul is one of those characters who is not afraid of conflict. He is not afraid to have you not like him. When he says, am I trying to please man? The answer is no. He ain't trying to please nobody. As a matter of fact, later in this letter, he will actually tell people that he confronted Peter. Peter, who is arguably one of Jesus' three favorite disciples who spent time with him. And he calls Peter on the carpet for what Peter is doing with the Gentiles and the Jews. And he doesn't do it in private. He does it in front of people. And he also tells the Galatians that he did it. Paul ain't afraid of nobody, which can get you into trouble sometimes, but on the other hand, you never have to worry about the motivation, right? Second of all, Paul is exasperated by these folks. He's absolutely at his wit's end, which I think is code for discouraged. Now, I get this, right? I think all over, goodness, probably all over the world these days, in light of the, pan the pandemic, there are people in ministry who are discouraged. <laughs> folks, numbers have dropped everywhere in terms of people who seem to be interested in participating in church community, which makes a lot of people going, am I wasting my time? God, can you give me something else to do? Why am I even doing this? I thought I was doing a good work, but there are people who seem to be like, whoop, I don't need any of that. And they're going off in a different direction. And I get this kind of discouragement. He's, he's concerned. He thought he taught them well. And now he's like, I wasted my time on you. Can you imagine somebody saying that to you? And here's the last thing that I think is, needs to be noticed here. Paul is not nearby. He is not close to these people. Here's why I think that's important. Because if Paul was close to these people, you know what he'd be doing? He'd be standing in front of them on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night and ripping them up and saying, what are y'all doing? He ain't afraid. He would have done it in their presence. But because he is not there, thank you, Jesus, he has to write it down. He has to write it down, which is the only reason, folks, we have the letter of Galatians to study. Think about it. If he had been there, he would have said it verbatim. It would never have been written down, and we could not have studied it, and we could not have preached it, and we could not have learned from what is arguably one of the most articulate defenses of the gospel in light of the law of the Old Testament is the book of Galatians. Now listen, I don't know where you are in your reading program, if you read the Bible through every year, and some of us get really gung-ho in January, and we're like, I'm going to start from the beginning and go to the end, man. And, you know, yeehaw, if that's what you do, but I'm telling you, so many of us started Genesis, and we get lost in Leviticus, and the whole thing goes up in smoke, right? But I'm telling you, if you need something to read this year, there are three books of the New Testament that you are, it, it is worthwhile to get under your belt, all right? Galatians is one of them. Galatians is a powerful exposition about what the gospel is. The other one is Romans. 
Romans is a little bit longer, also a letter to the Romans, where Paul again describes the gospel in such amazing, articulate ways. And then finally, I would suggest that you read the Gospel of John, which is John's account of Jesus' life. You get those three books under your belt in 2022, it's going to be a good year for you. I guarantee it. All right, moving on. All right, so here we are. What is Paul's primary concern? Why is he so disgusted, if I can use that term, with these people? What is it that they're doing that is so grievous to him? According to these verses, he says, his major concern is the gospel is being perverted. Now, words carry freight. And in our day and age, the word perversion maybe brings up different images for you. But, but initially, this, this book was written in Greek. It was not written in English. And so if you go back to the Greek words that are there, there are several different meanings for the word that's used here and translated as perverted. It can mean to turn. It can mean to change. It can mean to distort. Right? So what he's saying is somebody is distorting the gospel. You have something there that's, that's of essence. The essence of the gospel is there, but you're doing something to it. You're twisting it. You're doing something a little more to it. So why would he say that? And as I began to think about that, I thought, if Paul were writing to us today, what would he say? What would he say, would he challenge us with a distortion of the gospel? Are there ways in which we have been perverting the truth of Jesus in our own communities? Now see, in Paul's day, here's what it meant. In Paul's day, there were people who took the gospel and what it meant to surrender your life to Jesus and to receive forgiveness of sins, and then they started adding stuff on top of it. They started adding extra tasks, extra duties, extra things that you had to do. And Paul is saying, guys, stop it. Stop making it harder than it is. It's not that hard. And I'm thinking, why would the Jews do this? Why would you make this harder than it is? And this is what I think. Because when all else fails we will reach back to our default traditions and rituals to worship God. When everything else fails, we will go back to whatever it is that we were taught initially. When we struggle to walk in step with God, it is always easier to do what spiritual people do, right? And so the Jews had a distinct and well-practiced way of relating to God. There's no doubt about it. So it's not surprising that they superimposed that way upon anyone who came into faith from another culture and demanded the same things of them. And let's be real, some of that stuff was pretty good, right? Some of the stuff that they would, would have learned and want to demand are things like tithing. That's a good thing. Things like dietary restrictions, that's a healthy thing, actually. Uh, things like sexual purity, that's not only healthy physically, that's healthy emotionally, right? They're going to, and then they wanted to add on this little surgery called circumcision, right? And I'm thinking to you, you think it's a hard time to plant a church now? Can you imagine? You'd be like, dude, can you, you want to come to church with me? It's a great place. The members' class is a little tough right? Because, you know, you have to submit to this little surgery. But other than that, it's a really good place to be, and you can serve. And all. Can you imagine selling that? I mean, talk about a church filled with women. The men are out, right? They are not interested in this. And Paul is going, what are you all doing? Why are you making this so hard on people? And here's what it boils down to. What it boils down to is they're trying to tie their devotion to God to their personal culture. 
Let me say that again. They're trying to tie their devotion to God to their personal culture. It's not really that different from the way we do things today and the way that we're tempted to distort the gospel today and tie our faith practices to Christian culture. So number one, the gospel gets distorted when devotion to God is tied to personal culture. The gospel gets distorted when devotion to God is tied to personal culture. See, we don't love Jesus because that's what all good folks who were raised in the Bible Belt do. We don't go to church because that's what all good Christian people are supposed to do. We don't pray at ball games because this country was founded on, on uh, the gospel and that's what we do, right? We dare not let our traditions wag the dog. Now, it's tempting, and I'm gonna, I may step on a couple toes here, so, you know, just be ready to write down my email, all right? It's tempting in a land where our system of government permits us to have a voice, the loudest voices, the squeakiest wheels get the grease every four years. Am I right? Right? A couple more years, you can all swing the bat again. And four more years, you can swing the bat again. That's the benefit of living in a republic, which we live in. That's great. So we are tempted to vote our religious convictions into law as if that will solve anything, folks. Okay? When we politicize our faith, we begin to tie it to our personal culture instead of our personal relationship with God. And we risk grasping power for the convenience of living in a land that forces everybody to live according to God's word. Because that's never going to give them faith. It's just going to make it easier on us. Christianity is not a commodity of Western culture, but historians would like to think so. There's quite a few people who would like to think so. I used to teach at the university, and uh, when I was teaching American history, there's a, a historian, he came out of Yale, his name's John Butler, about 30 years ago, he coined a phrase that he, he used in a book he called A Wash in a Sea of Faith, and he began to discuss the impact of white people offering Christianity to the slaves who had come across from Africa, who had brought their African religion with them, and when they converted to Christianity, he calls this, are you ready, a spiritual holocaust. Well, that word carries freight, doesn't it? How dare you, you know, take away their religion. Now listen, if in any way white people were forcing them to practice Christianity in some way of demanding conformity, then you might have an argument that, you know, that was inappropriate and ill-advised. But to the degree that Francis Asbury and the circuit riders like him were on plantations preaching to slaves, and we can talk about slavery in another day and, and the difficulty of all of that, to the fact that those people received Jesus, became preachers of them, their own, and in some ways have a stronger Christian tradition than a lot of other folks, that's evangelism. That's not forcing somebody into religious conformity. Forcing someone into religious conformity never works. Okay? In the, in the uh, New England states where I studied, you would have the first people who come across to America from Europe and they're, you know, already a religious community, so they're all on the boat and they all signed the little document and we're going to live and we're going to establish this and we're going to do that. That's great for all the people on the boat because all the people on the boat were already believers, right? And so they decide they're going to meld their civic government and, and their religious government and everything is great until they all have a bunch of little brats who don't buy in. Good luck with that. 
Because now they, were, they didn't sign the document. They didn't want to be in that. Now you're trying to force it down their throat in a way that they're not buying into. You cannot force it. You cannot tie it to culture in that way. Simply voting our personal religious convictions into law is never going to cut it. In fact, it may serve to distort the gospel for many people. And if history serves any example at all, the gospel message actually thrives under duress. We actually see the gospel explode when we are told that we can't meet together in church, when we are told that we can't practice as a church community. That's when throughout history the gospel has thrived. But give us a place where we can do whatever we want. People get apathetic. It's not as important as it used to be. It's not that big a deal. But have everybody come in and tell us we can't meet anymore, and now we'll find out who cares. Now we'll find out what really matters with people. See, our personal devotion to God and the way we practice our faith needs to be consistent no matter what political party is in power or what laws are enforced. That should not play a role into how we practice and live our faith. If all we're after is religious conformity so that our own lives are easier to live, shame on us. That is not what God asked us for. Our traditions don't dictate our faith. Our faith dictates our traditions. I heard someone struggling in their marriage actually said this out loud to me not too long ago. And I get it, it was a bad day and she was pretty exasperated and she said, you know, if it wasn't for this stupid Christian tradition, I would have divorced him already. I was like, well, that's a very honest thing to say. And I'm sorry, you know, that that's forcing you to to give this marriage a go. On the other hand, I'm kind of glad you had a little pressure there, but that's never going to be good enough. That's never going to be good enough. You can't just stay in that because of, the, because of that. Am I living in response to my relationship with Jesus? Or am I doing this because of what I will lose in community if I step out of line? See, that's how conservative communities, where they, where they dictate religious conformity, that's how, they, that's how they do it. Because they lose something if they step out of line. So here's a way to consider if your faith and culture are blurring a bit. Ask yourself, what would I give up doing if I wasn't in a relationship with Jesus? What would I keep on doing even if I wasn't in a relationship with Jesus? You know, I attended uh, a fairly large high school in Ohio where I grew up in uh, probably about the size of Madison Central, uh, actually, and I stuck out like a sore thumb. I was raised uh, as a Mennonite, and so in, in high school, I, I couldn't dress like everybody else. I made my own clothes, and I wasn't allowed to cut my hair or wear jewelry or makeup or basically look like anyone else and fit in. And so um, I, I really got used to defending my faith. Now, now, let me help you understand. My faith was real. I'd made a decision for Jesus at the age of seven. And so while I might not have chosen those restrictions on my life at that time, I defended them as a way of that's how we lived our faith. That's how we expressed our faith. And I had to learn to articulate that. And, and, uh, and it, was, it was probably good for me in a lot of ways. I remember one time I was having a discussion with my high school civics teacher that I loved very much. And, and uh, it was always a very provocative discussion. And And uh, I must have said something that offended him. I don't even remember what I said, but I remember his response. And I I don't doubt it. I was probably pretty precocious at that point. And um, I just remember his response. And he's like, well, I'm a Christian. And I I didn't say it back, but in my head I was thinking, no, but I'm in a real Christian. And, And I didn't say that. But what I was struggling to articulate is, I was at a loss to articulate the difference between claiming Christianity as a category and cultivating a relationship with Jesus. 
And I, I couldn't put it in, in words back then. And maybe even today you might struggle with that. Back in the day, you know, there, when you were allowed to ask such things, I remember filling out a form. I, I probably was, you know, in middle school or something because I asked my mother. I said, it wants to know my religious affiliation and, and there's no box for Mennonite. What do I pick? And uh, it had Protestant, it had Catholic and a few other things. And, and she goes, oh, you, you pick Protestant. I'm like, what, what's, I don't go to the first church of Protestant. What's, what's that? She goes, it's everything that isn't Catholic. I was like, oh, oh, I don't know what we were protesting, but whatever. I figured all that stuff out later. But, but it was like back then, you picked a designation. You, you decided what you were. And, and I'm like, listen, we're not trying to make a bunch of Christians who check the box and can tell us the day that they were baptized. We're trying to help people recognize their need for Jesus and to walk in relationship with him. Our faith is not a religious designation that we click on a form. When Christianity and culture get blurred... When our response to Jesus becomes a responsibility, when we begin to confuse duty with devotion, we are distorting the gospel. And I think this is why, number two, people who get Jesus best or easiest are often people who didn't grow up in church. If that's you, good job. You probably have a head start on home, so many things. Because it is a new thing to you. See, in Paul's day, the very toughest crowd were not the people who were new to a life in Jesus. He was pretty successful with the Gentiles. People who didn't grow up with church life. He introduced something new to them. But the Jews who already had a pattern of religious devotion, now they were a tough nut to crack, right? Even those who had already truly surrendered to Jesus, even they had if they had totally recognized Jesus as Messiah and accepted his death on the cross for the forgiveness of their sin, it was a slippery slope to slide back into this transactional, rote, ritualistic, works-based religious devotion and check off the list. So that's why planting a church in the Bible Belt is kind of tough. There, it is hard to find anyone in this community who does not have a working knowledge of who Jesus is. They're like, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus is the son of God. And if your options are checking something weird on a, on a form, obviously you're going to check Christianity. But here's the dark side of it. When we depend upon our religious behaviors as a matter of culture, good as they may be, attending church, serving, giving in the offering, reading your Bible, avoiding the ten big sins, when we depend on that, our faith becomes dull, empty, boring, and ultimately unfulfilling to us or to God. And I'm going to ask you at the end of the service today if, if you're kind of feeling like you're here, so I'm going to mark it right now, right? Our faith can become dull and boring and empty and ultimately unfulfilling to God. And I want you to know that if you're not having a good time in your relationship to Jesus, he's not having a good time either. <laughs> That's not what he wanted. Right? It's a little bit like a marriage. If your marriage has broken down to a place of perfunctory behavior, of living in a family unit together, and that's all it is, then neither of you are happy, right? Neither of you are happy with that. And when we depend on our religious behavior as a matter of culture, we also begin to judge other people based on the things that we're good at, based on the things that we're used to doing. Right? And if you were raised to do certain religious things, it's not much of a stretch to keep that up. You know, I need you to know that I don't get credit for the fact that I didn't party in school. Nobody was inviting the Mennonite kid to the party. I didn't turn anybody down, trust me. 
Nobody, nobody invited me to do anything nefarious. The worst thing I, that God has to do is help TP something, right? I mean, no, I didn't get credit for that. I also don't get credit for the fact that cussing was never a struggle for me because there was no one in my life that I respected who used coarse language. Nobody. So you emulate the people you respect. I didn't respect any of those people, so I didn't get caught up in... Big deal. I don't get credit for that. People who were involved in things and come away from them. Now that's a much bigger testimony, right? That's a much bigger, bigger mark. When I lean on my habitual behavior as evidence of my faith, I have to regularly sort out what it means to live in relationship with God and not just operate on autopilot. That's what I'm inviting us to do today. Sort out what it means to live in relationship with God and not operate on autopilot. Because here's the third thing that I think we get in trouble with when we do that, when we're just leaning on that stuff. We pass off a shallow faith to our children. I don't want to camp here for a minute. We pass off a shallow faith to our children because I'm going to let you in on a little secret. You cannot give faith to your kids. You cannot pass off faith in God to your kids. It has to be personal. It has to be a passion for them. If there was a way to pass it off, folks, we would be marketing it right now because who of us wouldn't want our kids to, to get what we have if there was a way to guarantee it? And if you can guarantee it, then they made no choice of their own. And what glory is that to God? They have to make those choices on their own. A relationship with God is personal, it's a matter of passion, and it cannot be inherited. While my husband's been recuperating and, and finishing his time, we, we watched a movie, uh, the Will Smith movie called King Richard, about uh, Venus and Serena Williams and, and how they came up to, to become the tennis stars that they are. And, and, um, it, and it struck me as we were watching that, that you know what? You cannot give a kid a passion for tennis. You can't give them that, but you can teach them mechanics. You can give them that all day long. You can't give them the passion. They either have it or they don't, and they're either going to use it or they won't, but you cannot do that. So if we want our kids to really walk with Jesus in relationship, here's a few things we can do. Let's be positive today. Number one, teach them the mechanics. <laughs> teach them the mechanics, just like you would anything else you want them to get good at right? So teach them those things. You can teach them to say pre-written prayers when they're little. You can teach them to talk to God freestyle when they get a little older. You can teach them about all the truth of God that you want to, that you know. You can answer their questions. You can tell them when you don't know the answers to the questions. You can teach them to read their Bible. Those are mechanics. None of it's going to earn them salvation. None of it's going to guarantee anything, but you're certainly giving them what they need in case the passion comes along. Secondly, you can model it. As parents, we can model our faith to our kids. Now, I know there's a verse that says that, you know, when you pray, go into your closet and don't let anybody see you. I think what we're talking about there is don't be braggadocious about what you're doing. Don't be bragging to everybody in the world about what your personal devotion looks like. But when it comes to your children, let them see you pray. Let them see you pray by yourself. Let them see you having personal devotions and let them see how you give in community right? Model that in front of them. That is way more meaningful than forcing them into a family devotion time, although that may be mechanics. But when they do it themselves, when they see you doing it, when they see people they respect modeling it, then they may, that may build interest for them. Number three, you provide opportunity and environment for engaging God. 
Provide them with opportunity and environments for engaging God. You can take them to church. You can send them to youth group. My kid don't like youth group. You send them a lot of places they don't want to go. You send them to school, partly because you get in trouble if you don't, but also because you know it's good for them, right? You send them to youth group. Well, it's not very interesting. You know how many uninteresting youth groups presented, I mean, and, and produced people like my husband? Are you kidding me? Send them to youth group. Send them to church camp. What you're doing is you're giving them an opportunity to engage God because some, maybe somebody interesting other than you is going to say something that's going to sink in. Do that. Provide them with those opportunities. You would send them to, to team practice for good or for bad. And those coaches make your kids cry. And you go, just go back and do it again, honey. But if uh, heaven help the youth director that makes your little precious cry, you'd never let them go back again, would you? What the world, right? We're trying to provide an opportunity for kids to grow. It doesn't have to be Disneyland. We need opportunities for them to engage God in those places. Celebrate their early commitments to Jesus. You encourage them to go public and get baptized, and they will get wet. All right? That's no guarantee. Now listen, I had a bunch of kids, okay? And when they got baptized, I didn't go... Okay, got that one down. We're back. We're, no, I could tell when my children grew in their faith and when it finally became personal to them. I could tell that. And, it, I, I, and nobody was home free until that happens, until it becomes that. You cannot force it on your kids and thank God. Thank God Almighty and little baby Jesus that we cannot force it because that's not pleasing to God. If there was a formula for getting your kids into the kingdom, we would all want it. There are no guarantees. You know, sometimes my kids didn't actually like the tater tot casserole I served up. But it was an opportunity for nutrition. And if they didn't like it, maybe they'd like what we served the next night. It'd be all right. But you know what? They're going to sit there and have that opportunity, right, to do what we are all doing. I am telling you that we are letting our 13-year-olds make decisions that are way above their pay grade. Way above their pay grade. Friends, when they leave our house, they can decide if they want to serve Jesus. They can decide if they're attracted to males, females, or chickens. But at the ages of 13, 15, and 17, they can deal with what God gave them and what you're doing in your home. They can do that. That's not going to sour them. You are not going to ruin your kids on Jesus by bringing them to church and making them do things that they may not have an interest in doing on their own yet. You're not going to ruin them on food by making them eat together as a family. You're not going to ruin them on spending money by teaching them how to handle it. You're not going to ruin your kid to ever get a good job because you actually made them work hard and teach them a work ethic by espousing certain behaviors and values as a family. We are responsible to restrain our children from harmful behavior and environments that are bad for them until they are no longer dependent upon us for shelter and for food and phones. That may take a long time. You know what I'm saying? When they're covering all that for themselves, then they get to do what they want to do. Until then, you have some responsibility. So in this letter... Paul is reminding the Galatians that, number three, true faith in God is a relationship. It is a relationship. And I want you to know that that phrase, in a relationship, you will not find chapter and verse four, but what you will find is that is the way God describes his 
interaction with us throughout Scripture. Look at Hosea, look at Ezekiel, look at Isaiah, and they all describe God's feelings of, of rejection from the children of Israel in terms of adultery. And adultery is the most personal rejection of a relationship that you can have, right? So he's describing a relationship that we have. So how do we cultivate a relationship with Jesus? According to Paul in these verses, but now you know God and are known by God. That's the essence of having a relationship with him. You know, as Christmas was coming this year, I felt such a, we were excited about our children coming home to visit and, and we were going to celebrate a little bit early and I was thinking about the presents that we were preparing and, and I, I was just caught up in the anticipation of what that might mean and, and giving them gifts. Now, we still give gifts. We don't give like gift cards and, and stuff. We, we give gifts. You don't have to do that. But for me, the purpose of the gift is knowing my kid and seeing if they liked what I got them. That's knowing them, right? A good gift is not a high dollar gift. A good gift is a gift that means something to you because the person who gave it to you knows you. That's what God gave you because he knows you. And, you know, we never did Santa Claus. I wouldn't let some little red suit guy steal my thunder. We gave him those good gifts, right? Those are the gifts that were under our tree. Psalm 139, 29 says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. How do I regularly invite God to test my thoughts and behavior? Testing is for the purpose of correction. So how am I asking God to regularly correct me in places where I need it? John 14, 21 says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. In the Greek, it means to reveal. I will reveal myself to them. God wants to reveal himself to you. He doesn't want you to just know about him and show up and sing a few songs and listen to somebody talk to you. He wants you to know him, and he wants to reveal himself to you. Not knowing more about God, but knowing him. In Ephesians, Paul says it this way, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that God may dwell in your hearts, not your heads, might dwell in your hearts through faith and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Love always surpasses knowledge. Don't confuse that with relationship. So what does it mean to to develop a devotional character that, that builds your relationship with God? Now, I worry about this a little bit because it seems to favor the academic. It's like, oh, the people who love to journal and write and do read and all that stuff, they're the people who can get close to God. No, you don't have to love that stuff to get close to God. There are other ways for you to get alone with God. Jesus was getting alone with God often. His disciples had to go find him in the morning, and to our knowledge, he wasn't packing a journal with him, right? He was getting alone with God. When's the last time somebody had to hunt for you? Because you were alone with God. That's what they were doing. They were hunting for Jesus. So attending church is part of devotional life. Giving to God is, is a regular part of it, but we need to spend time with him and cultivate it. So what does devotion look like? I'm going to march through this really fast. Are you ready? Marks of a relationship. This is not exhaustive, but I think they are important. Number one, conversation. I can tell when a couple is in a relationship with one another because they talk. They talk to each other. And they don't talk to each other by going, here's my list of things that I want. Let me know when you get them for me. 
We go to God that way, don't we? Here, please heal Aunt Sally and, uh, and Uncle Fred and take care of my dog and, and you know, my cousin's nephew and, and here's my list and let me know when you get that done. That, that's not a conversation with God. That's something else. Have a conversation with him. Sit and have a conversation with him. Number two, gifts. Gifts are an indication of relationship. In a, in a, a dating relationship, young people are giving each other gifts. And, they're, and, and, not, and mama needs a new pair of shoes, but I'm giving you something of affection. I'm giving you something that marks how I feel about you. Number three, you want to know the mark of a relationship? Check their calendar. <laughs> Check their calendar and see. You show me somebody's calendar, I can tell you what they prioritize in their life, where they spend their time, what it is that they do. What we do with our time indicates what we're doing in our relationship with God. Number three, familiarity. You begin to know somebody well. Have you ever walked up to somebody you thought you knew and you began to talk to them and they turned around and you're like, whoa, I'm so sorry. Right? You, just, if you, you didn't say anything inappropriate, but it was just like it was too familiar. You don't really know them. No, when you know somebody, you have that familiarity with someone. I think this is why people are afraid to pray in front of other people because it kind of gives away the level of intimacy that you have with the Father. And we, we sometimes don't want other people to see that. Number five, a relationship grows. It grows. When people come into our office because their marriage is on the rocks, it's often partly because it's no longer growing. It's gone stagnant. Nobody's pouring into it anymore. Nobody's fertilizing anything anymore. Nobody's cultivating anything anymore. Nobody's, water, nobody's doing that stuff. Our relationship with God is not a get baptized and now here it is to the rest of my days. Oh, we grow. And number six, this is just one I think has to fit in here. I think a relationship is noted by the way it fights. When we're doing marriage counseling, we spend a whole session on how to fight well, not how to duke it out and hit one another, but how to handle conflict, how to, how to respect one another in the presence of conflict. If you agree on everything, there's no need for one of you, right? And I contend that if you've never had a fight with your spouse, you just don't spend enough time together. Right? If you don't fight with God, maybe you aren't spending enough time with him. When's the last time you had a fight with God? I've been fighting with him since Wednesday when I found out I was going to speak. And I'm like, God, I got nothing. So you better show up because I'm getting worried and it's getting late. And you better give me something. Right? Don't be afraid to tell God what you think. And don't be afraid you'll be too sassy for him because if you are, he'll respond to you like he did Job in the book of Job. And he says, brace yourself like a man. I got things to say now. Then you can sit down and hear him. Jacob wrestled with an angel. You can, you, can, you can talk with God. You can handle conflict without disrespecting him. So diligently and consistently spend time with him. Get a plan. Work your plan. Walking with God in relationship is a constant process of knowing him and being known. Now for ministry time, I felt like God gave me two different categories of people that, that he wanted me to speak to today. If you're around here very long, you see that we have people up here that are on our uh, prayer team, and they're here to minister to people. So let's rise to our feet. But the, some of the, uh, one category of people that was really on my heart as I was preparing this are people who are churched. Maybe you're a young person who's grown up in a family, and you're doing what is expected of you, and you're saying the right things, and you're going to the right places, but you know in your heart that you've never really said yes to Jesus. You may even be, have gotten baptized, but there's a part of you that is not cultivating a deep, real relationship with Jesus, and it's time to go public with that. 
it's time to make that clear and not just floating along on the expectations. I'm glad you are if you're doing that, but, but now it's time. Sometime it's, it, it's going to be time for you to make it real. Is that this morning? If that's you, I want you to come forward this morning because this is a place where you can do that. And anybody up here would be ready to pray with you over that. Here's the second category. Are you some of those people who are like, you know what? I do all the things. I've said yes to Jesus. I've been living in relationship with him. But you know what? It's gone a little flat. It's just gotten a little dull. And I think I'm depending on my activity instead of my my passion for Jesus. And it's become a responsibility instead of a response. It's become a duty instead of devotion. And I want it to have more fire this year. I want that passion. Like like King David said in the Psalms, restore to me the joy of my salvation. If that is you this morning, I'm not asking you to come pray with any of these people. I'm asking you to come right here because I want to pray with you. If that's you this morning, if you want 2022 to be better than 21, if you want your life with Jesus to be more passionate and you want to know him better in this coming year, can I pray with you this morning? That's right. Anybody else? You know, my fear in putting this call out was who wouldn't come forward? That's, That's a cheap call. Everybody wants to be closer to Jesus, don't we? Like, no, God said, that's what I wanted you to say. You know, I want it to be, I want it to be better. I want to know God more. I want him to know me more. And this doesn't mean picking up five more things that I'm going to do that's going to make me feel more disciplined or whatever. It's about saying, God, reveal yourself to me. I'm here and I want, I want to know you more. It's been a terrible year and I want this year to be better. Don't, I don't want it to go flat. I want it to grow. I want it to get better in this year. God, I don't even know what that means, but I want, I want to grow in you. I want to cultivate that. I don't want this to be a category for me. I want it to be a passion for me. I want it to be something I can articulate to the people around me, the people I work with, to explain what you're doing in my life. I want to be able to tell somebody what you've said to me because I want to be able to hear it. God, we come to you right now, and I thank you for each person who stood up here. God, this represents hunger. This represents people who want to know you more deeply. These are, these are your children. These are your followers. These are people who already know you, Father, and they want more of you. Like Moses, in their darkest moments, we go on the mountain and we say, God, show me your glory. Give me your glory this year. Let me see something of you that I've never seen before, something you've never revealed to me before. God, right now, I pray that that will be the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. For those of us who've never really engaged the Holy Spirit, we've heard about him. We usually put him in a corner somewhere where he doesn't cause any trouble. God, we want the Holy Spirit to come and fall on us in a fresh way to reveal things to us, to counsel us, to demonstrate his power and presence here. God, I thank you that we don't, we're not called to this flat existence with you. We're called to grow in you. And that you always have more for us. Always have more for us. Take us further.
If you're watching online and this is you and you are you're virtually coming forward and asking for the same thing, please say something in the chat. Let us know who you are so that we can pray for you there too. And I'm reaching out and praying over you at the same time. Thank you, God, for this time. In Jesus' name. All right, for all of you, either those of you here and those of you that are still out there, there are people here ready to pray. If there's something specific you would like someone to pray for you about, please come up. And if these people get filled up, I promise you there will be more. Let's use this time well, an opportunity to interact with God during this last song.